Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such a wonderful show for you this evening. The most inspirational, motivational, and truly wonderful person I can imagine on the planet. Colonel Nicole Malakowski is here with us again, and I, I'm just absolutely thrilled uh, to get to her, to be able to talk to her um, about such an important subject as coping with pilot health issues, which is something I think more and more people in general aviation have to face. Before we get started, just a few updates about things happening here at Social Flight, as always. First of all, we're seeing so many fall fly-ins, young eagles, and get-togethers that are happening. Uh, it really seems like things across the country are, are working out for some great flying weather. So be sure to check out socialflight.com or the free Social Flight mobile apps on Apple and Android devices, and there are tens of thousands of aviation events and destinations, $100 hamburgers, cool places to fly. There's just so much going on there. So be sure to check that out. In addition, we have our Fly to Win Challenge. We just gave away a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset, and the winner was Robert McGuire, and uh, just absolutely thrilled that uh, he won this new headset. And we're giving away another one now. So. All you need to do is get the Social Flight mobile app, get out there and fly. If you check in at just any airport during the prize period, you're entered to win. And if you check in at a bunch of places and wind up uh, on uh, the top 30 of our leaderboard, then you have extra entries. So it's all good. And then the last thing is that within Social Flight, we have launched our FAA learning system, which means that if you are interested in WINGS credits or FAA AMT credits or going for your A&P IA renewal and want to get that education in, it is all available for free and on demand in Social Flight. Just go to socialflight.com, click on the FAA credits icon, and you'll be able to make all of that work. It's all free, and we've dedicated everything we do to supporting you and general aviation as a whole. And so with that, I'd like to also mention that tonight's broadcast is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, a very strong supporter of Social Flight and a company that makes it uh, so possible for us to have this. And I'm going to share an image with you that I'm very, very excited about. Uh, this is going to be the first time that we have shown this publicly. It is ahead of our YouTube build for what we're doing with our Mustang. But I'm going to uh, give you a sneak peek right now. This is the panel of our Mustang, our T-51 Titan Mustang that we just lit up as we're moving forward in this build with Aspen right at the center of it. And we're really, really excited about that. It was a big day and you'll get to see that video released shortly showing how we've completed that step of our build. And we did it to stay right in line with what we have uh, in the Bonanza. Uh, I'm a huge fan, as I mentioned, of doing this. You know, there's a lot of, of smaller displays that you can get for uh, for aircraft. And um, by having the form factor of the Aspen and being able to do top-to-bottom synthetic vision, uh, their E5 unit that's so inexpensive and you can continue to just upgrade over time, I just recommend everybody check that out. So with that, 
I would like to uh, introduce my first guest, my only, my favorite guest tonight, Colonel Nicole Malakowski, the first Thunderbirds pilot of the United States Air Force. When Colonel Nicole Malakowski was in middle school, uh, believe it or not, women were prohibited from becoming fighter pilots. But against these odds, she joins us today as a combat veteran. She's a pilot that has flown the amazing F-15 Strike Eagle in multiple war zones. She rose to become a flight commander, an instructor pilot, and flight lead, and has more than 2,300 hours in six different Air Force aircraft. She served as a White House fellow as well, and as I mentioned earlier, became the first female Thunderbirds pilot with the... Um, that amazing air demonstration team. She retired due to medical reasons in 2017 and since that time has transformed her life's work into helping others face similar life challenges, which is what we're going to talk about this evening. I'm going to bring uh, Colonel uh, Malakowski on the call right now and it is my great honor to welcome you to the show. Nicole, how are you? I'm doing great. Greetings from Colorado. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming back on. It is such an honor to have you here. Uh, and, and I'm reminded every time I even look behind you uh, at, at what is essentially your office and, and your set there, at what, what your accomplishments are, it, it really is amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you kindly. And it's definitely good to be back. It's always a joy, not just to chat with you, but also to hang out with all of your followers who I've managed to meet in person a few times and communicate with on social media myself. So hello, everybody. <laughs> I, I want to get, give a call out to one of those in particular here. I'm going to, I'm going to bring a picture up here. We, uh, it, it, for all of those who don't know that this is a very, very small world, you were in the San Diego airport and uh, Marguerite and Don Hickman came up and found you and you guys even ended up calling me at that time. Indeed. Um, I was uh, just coming home from a business trip. I was kind of tired, kind of hungry. And so I was grabbing maybe a, a sandwich and, possibly an adult beverage. I, I wasn't flying that day, so I thought I could grab a beer. It was the Stone Brewing Company. And um, these two <clears throat> folks were sitting behind me and they kept looking at me. Uh, and finally he got up, I think, to get another beer. And, and, and Marguerite turned around and said, are you Nicole Malakowski? I listened to you on Social Flight Live. Well, we just clicked. I think we spent the next hour just totally chatting with each other. And I think all three of us nearly missed our flights. Um, so Hi, everybody. Good to see you again. <laughs> so to everyone out there, just remember, it's a small world here in general aviation and in our social flight community. And uh, we're just thrilled when we, uh, when we get a chance to meet some of you uh, and not just be behind the camera here. And I was absolutely thrilled that you all called me. It made my Father's Day when that happened. That's for sure. <laughs> well, we couldn't believe that we were connected through, you know, this podcast and through you and so i was like you know what i have jeff's phone number he would get a kick out of this if we call him right now and so we did why not seize the day <laughs> exactly so nicole one of the things i want to to do is just kind of set a, a background here uh about your life and uh some of the amazing accomplishments and what kind of made you who you were um, before you got to that point of having to, to face medical challenges so we can give people an idea of where you come from. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's hard to synopsize 47 uh, years of living here, but, um, you know, I grew up in central California. I was born in Santa Maria, eventually raised in Las Vegas, Nevada. I remember going to an air show when I was five years old and I saw an F-4 Phantom flyby, right, which was a workhorse of the Vietnam War. And I remember just the smell of the jet fuel and covering my ears because of the sound and how my whole body just rumbled 
um, and just being super excited and, and shaking with excitement. You know, like when little kids like completely get excited, that was me. And at five years old, I remember thinking, I, I want to be a fighter pilot someday. Now, of course, I had no clue that it was technically against the law for women to become fighter pilots. But as a kid, you're not concerning yourself with Congress. Uh, but that's what kind of lit my fire. And I stayed very much, uh, I like to say, maniacally focused on this goal since I was five of becoming a fighter pilot. And I'm glad it worked out because I didn't really have a backup plan. But you know, I, I joined things like the Civil Air Patrol and Junior ROTC. Um, they afforded me scholarships to fly while I was in high school. So I was able to, you know, solo before I got my driver's license. And it set me up well, of course, um, to head off to the Air Force Academy. Uh, growing up in Las Vegas, Nevada, I mean, Nellis Air Force Base is right there, which, of course, as you know, is home of the fighter pilot. So having those fighter jets fly overhead, seeing Thunderbirds fly as a kid, you know, kept me focused, uh, kept me on the right path, kept me from getting, I guess, distracted a little bit, but found my way, you know, to the United States Air Force Academy, graduated in 1996, uh, lucky enough to get a pilot slot, headed off to Columbus Air Force Base, um, spent a year there. I was uh, lucky enough to finish fourth in my class, which allowed me to pick an F-15E Strike Eagle. So I headed to F-15E training at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina, and I guess will go faster and funnier. You know, over that career, uh, I flew in three operational F-15E squadrons. I had the privilege of commanding the 333rd Fighter Squadron at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. Worked in the White House um, twice. I also served as an ALO with the Army 2nd Infantry Division in Korea. A couple other little fun assignments in there. Um, and then my very last assignment, I was working at the White House. And everything was going really, really well. I was a full bird colonel. Um, I had, was heading in the right direction, you know, I was competitive maybe for the next promotion, um, and I got really sick, kind of uh, out of nowhere, very unexpectedly and very unwelcome, and unfortunately, that's when my career came to an end, uh, and in 2017, as a full bird colonel, um, overnight, you know, my life changed, and I found myself medically retired, and I found myself going, what in the world am I going to do now? You know, who am I if I'm not wearing my nation's uniform? Who am I if I'm not flying as an aviator? What's my contribution to society anymore? And that's uh, how I kind of went through this transition, which I think we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I mean, obviously, you're probably the most positive human being I have ever met and know as a friend. <laughs> I can't imagine, though, getting that news and, and, and also having to deal with the effects of the illness. Um, was not something to kind of knock, you know, put a little bump in the road and in, in, in that. What was it like going from that type A, very uh, incredibly positive to, to being faced with something that's an internal vulnerability, like your, what's, yeah. what your body's doing? Oh, I mean, it remains to this day one of this, I would say the second most difficult thing I've ever done in my life because my pregnancy with my twins, which is a whole nother medical odyssey, um, was very emotional and there was three lives involved. And so that will always probably remain the most difficult thing. But this medical retirement in 2017, the fact of the matter is, is it completely broke me. I mean, I went from somebody who was, uh, at the time I got sick, actually, um, I was the commander of this fighter squadron right here. And I was physically fit and I was mentally fit and I was spiritually fit, and I came down with this mysterious kind of complex chronic illness that no doctors could figure out, and 
for the next four years after I left that assignment, I struggled, you know, with the medical system, in particular uh, with the military medical system, which has its own challenges, you know, to figure out what was wrong with me. I, I fought to, to hold on to my career, which was going really well. And I did, in fact, find myself a full bird colonel in the White House. But for four years, I mean, I suffered, you know, until August of 2017 when I woke up in my bed in Northern Virginia, thinking I was gonna put my uniform on that day and go to work at the White House. And instead I woke up locked in. Um, I could not walk, talk, move, speak, anything. And I had to wait there until somebody found me. And when you go from someone who is completely independent, you know, kind of type A fighter pilot, to someone who overnight is completely dependent on other people, for all activities of your daily living. That's scary. Um, it's terrifying. It is hard for my ego. Um, and it was just very uh, confusing at the time, you know, what's gonna happen? And, and for the people watching, you should know these moments of kind of being locked in or what I call temporary paralysis, um, they would come and go. So they would last a few seconds or a few minutes. It was almost like someone had a clicker they could turn me on and turn me off. And, you know, I would never know. It was a very scary time for our family. Um, and, you know, at that moment, it became a matter of just survival, right? You, you forget about going to work. You know, you forget about putting on your uniform or that you're a fighter pilot or you're supposed to fly planes or be an officer. Like, it became instantaneously a moment of survival. And as we worked through an accurate diagnosis and treatment, you know, I remained hopeful that... I would be able to get back into the aircraft. And I'll never forget the moment. Um, I was actually in a wheelchair because uh, I couldn't walk. My husband was with me. Uh, we were up at Massachusetts General Hospital where I was finally accurately diagnosed. Um, it took four years and 24 plus doctors across eight specialties to finally diagnose me correctly. Um, and I remember looking at the doctor and kind of mouthing whatever words I could, like I could say, and my husband was supporting me. I said, how long? until I can get back into the jet? That was the first question. As soon as she diagnosed me, I said, how long until I can get back into the jet? I mean, that's what any pilot would say, right? Yeah. And Dr. Nevena Zubchevic, who saved my life, she looked down at me and she said, I don't think you're ever gonna fly again. You were undiagnosed for too long and too much damage has been done to your brainstem. And Wow, I'm kind of reliving it right now. I mean, everything that I had wanted since I was five years old, everything I had been since I was five years old, all of that effort, that entire dream, all that I had done in that military career, you know, was gone. And I'm not going to sit here and say that I was instantaneously hopeful and optimistic like you see today. I was absolutely crushed and absolutely devastated. So. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I'm so sorry. That must have been, you know, really crushing. I, I want to catch on to one thing, touch on something that you said. And, and that was how when that critical moment hit you of being uh, essentially paralyzed, mm. that nothing else mattered at that point, though, that, that, that the focus changes. A hundred percent. I mean, it was literally life or death literally. And I think when those of us face that kind of a moment, you pretty instinctually and instantaneously know. 
Yeah. I, the, one of the things, though, that's remarkable about it is we in aviation, you know, the way that things are set up both in the military and also through the FAA and medical system, et cetera. I mean, obviously we fly as a privilege and, and we, we fly as, as much as, as we're allowed to based on our medical condition, period. And, it, and that wool, that rug can get pulled out at any moment. Indeed. It, it seems that there is no, I've seen in so many people that it's hard for there to be a gradual path of trying to take care of things and take care of ourselves mm-hmm. when problems start because we're just, we just don't want to threaten our flying right. in our career. And yet sometimes we'll play with fire all the way up until that point. And then all of a sudden it's gone completely. And all you think about is forget about flying. I just, I just want to be able to move. Right. Well, I think it's human nature, right? First of all, I think pilots are all, cut from the same cloth, if you will, personality and characteristic wise. I mean, regardless of what type of pilot you are, commercial, military, just a private pilot having fun. Like that's what we want to do. That's our passion. We put effort into it. We enjoy it. It's fun. It adds to the beauty of our life. That's why we do it. And just the idea of going to the doctor to say, Hey, I think something's a little different or something might be wrong. You know, I'm sensing something that's a little bit off. We think, ah, I don't want to risk, right, giving up, you know, my passion, this idea of being grounded, like no pilot wants to be grounded. And unfortunately, to your point, you know, what can happen over time when we ignore the smaller things is eventually they can grow into very big things that become much more difficult uh, to fix or maybe much more time consuming or even financially consuming to fix or ultimately, in some cases, become completely unfixable. And so, if we look back about and think about how much we really love aviation and we love being in that cockpit, you know, if there's somebody out there watching right now, that's kind of got, you know, got a little something that's a little different, you know, you're just noticing I'm feeling a different way. I'm not able to focus. I've got a little extra pain. I say, get in there and get to the doctor now and nip this absolutely in the butt. You know, life exists outside of the cockpit. Joy and happiness, I can tell you, can be found, you know, even when you're an old washed up fighter pilot that's the NIF for life now, right? You know, I'm grounded for life, but there's still a lot of good to be found. So take the chance, go in and see your doctor, talk about it, try to nip these things in the bud before they become irreversible. That makes a lot of sense. And and yet, of course, it's always so hard to follow, uh, you know, to, to do. But I mean, you're right. I mean, on one hand, by kind of essentially being open about medical issues early, uh, you have the best chance of fixing them and staying in the cockpit. Uh, On the other hand, if everything's not going to allow you to stay in the cockpit, it still makes more sense, I think, for more people to to remain healthier rather than risk that health for some duration of time in the cockpit before ultimately it's ended in some obvious fashion. Absolutely. And, you know, in my case, I just told you mine was very unexpected, very overnight, very, you know, unwelcome, and I didn't have any control over it. And so when I listen to pilots who are saying, oh, I'm not feeling quite well, or, you know, I don't want to go actually into the doctor, I personally get just a little bit, you know, like frustrated, because even if it's bad news, and I've received the worst of the news, right? Even if it's bad news for you, at least you'll be given that time, right? to put your health first, 
that amount of time to think about how to reinvent yourself, that amount of time to think about how you're, you're going to stay connected and you're going to still have an impact on the aviation community so that it's not this abrupt, you know, fall off the cliff like happened to me. I look at people and go, you right now you have time to kind of ease into this if mm -hmm. it is bad news. Um, but that's because I have the perspective that I have, right? I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty for all of us. Well, maybe that perspective, I'd like to talk about that for a minute, because I think that the perspective on what you can be and that 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 the end of your time as PIC, at least in the cockpit or something or something else, isn't the end of everything. If we if we can telegraph ahead and see what life could be, then then maybe that you manage things a lot more differently now than you do. So tell me about your transition yeah. from, you know, this top of the game. Uh, uh, you know, Air Force uh, commander uh, uh, to someone now who is world renowned and, and sought after for speaking and have a, this, you know, unbelievable uh, a career position that uh, in, in many ways is, is evolutionary from where you were. Yeah, I, I feel like I have to give you guys a little bit of context in order, you know, to answer that. I I want to tell you that the day that my military retirement came, uh, December 29th, 2017, um, I had been bedridden and housebound for over a year and a half and um, was going through the military medical evaluation board or military medical retirement process, which, by the way, is just a difficult thing to go through. Um, but I remember the day that it came. I, I had no ceremony. I never had an Air Force retirement ceremony. Um, half of my stuff was mailed to me, like in an envelope in the mail, my retirement paperwork and stuff like, you know, thank you for your service. And, and the day of my retirement also not one person from the air force called not one, nobody from my chain of command, right? You left us a year and a half ago to go to doctor's appointments and be a patient and, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And I think that added to my hurt, right. And to my pain, I, I definitely felt, and I've said this publicly and I, I mean it and I'll say it again. I felt deeply abandoned and betrayed um, by the Air Force that I had given so much to. And at that same time, right, I'm enduring a severe infection. And, and, and your, you know, your viewers need to know I had a systemic bodily infection from a tick bite. I had five different tick-borne illnesses. They had indeed gotten into my central nervous system and had indeed uh, impacted my brainstem. So this was you know, a big deal. I was going to vestibular rehab. I was learning to, to walk and talk and read and write and all those things again. And that day that it came, 29 December, 2017, I cried. It was low. I'm not going to sit here and pretend. I was like, oh, no big deal. I'm just going to move on. We're human beings. And I believe when you endure medical stuff like this, you have to give yourself an ability to grieve. You have to cry. You have to grieve. You have to feel sorry for yourself for a bit. It's okay to be sad, right? It's okay to realize this isn't what I expected and I'm upset. And I afforded myself and my husband and my family that space to do that. And I think that's important, okay? Um, and, but as I laid there that day, I remember thinking, who am I if I'm not wearing my nation's uniform? Who am I if I'm not an officer in the Air Force? Who am I if I'm not in a cockpit? Like, who's ever going to hire me, right? What could I possibly do? Because what your viewers don't know is I live with complex chronic illness, right? I, I have a difficulty reading and writing. Um, I have a lot of fatigue and pain. I have a balance deficit, which is why they won't let me pass an FAA medical. 
you know, along with the reading and writing problem. Um, and so at that moment, it just all came down. And as I sat there, very distinctly, these words came to my head. And I want to share them with your, you know, your viewers. The words that came to my head were yield to overcome. I don't know why those three words came to my head. You can call it God, the universe, whatever you think. Yield to overcome. And with those words, that was kind of that click moment where I realized it's okay to reminisce about the past, but don't ruminate on the past. And this moment, it's not what you can't do. You're asking yourself the wrong questions, Nicole. Yield to overcome means acceptance. Accepting what happened to you. I didn't ask to get bit by some random tick. I didn't ask to be undiagnosed as long as I did. I didn't ask to be as sick as I was. It just was. So the real question, Nicole, is what is it that you can do now to move forward? Uh, for our aviation, you know, metaphors here, or analogies, I always get those words mixed up. But, you know, the runway behind you is always unusable unless you're a helicopter pilot. You know, the <laughs> runway in front of you is what you got. And yield to overcome snapped me out of it and got me to be, you know, a little bit more forward looking. Wow. That's a fascinating uh, approach to it. And it's true. I mean, you mentioned, of course, that you, you have to allow yourself to mourn it Indeed. and then allow yourself to be motivated to move beyond it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, so you, you kind of alluded into like, how did you end up becoming a speaker? Look, I am an accidental speaker if there ever was one. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a speaker and, and leadership consultant now. And, and very selfishly, one of the reasons I do it is I get to take my aviation stories and my lessons learned and share them with people. I couldn't just let aviation go. It's a part of who I am. I'm a fighter pilot, darn it. And I got stories to tell. And <laughs> as I was working through speech therapy and working on my memory, you know, I would start talking about these turning points in my career and these turning points in my personal life. And a couple of people were like, those are interesting stories, you know, like, there's professional speakers. And I laughed. I laughed at the idea that there was a speaking industry. And I laughed at the idea that anybody would pay somebody, you know, to listen to their story. Obviously, I've been doing this for four years now. And, you know, I've learned my lesson the positive way. But, you know, as I was sitting there trying to think, what am I going to do with myself? I can't work a full-time job. You know, I can't you know, probably be dependable or reliable to other people or other teams. I, I probably need to start my own business. You know, the entrepreneurial spirit kind of kicked in. And then I came across, uh, as I was looking about, you know, what am I going to do and doing a little research, I came across a Japanese philosophy, which I think I've talked to you about before. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, this Japanese philosophy is called uh, Ikigai or Ikigai. Um, it is a very formal tradition in Japan, and I'm, I want to pay it its due respect if you want to learn more about it, it's I-K-I-G-A-I, -I -I, but I'm going to give you the very westernized simple version really quick. Uh, when you're trying to reinvent yourself, right, or move forward, Ikigai says you need to find something that combines four things. Something you're good at, something you love, something the world needs, and something you can get paid for. And I, I love people. I love connecting with people. I, I love talking with people. So that's cool. And I figured out they do pay people to speak and do leadership consulting. And the world kind of does need it, right? There's conferences and leadership development, so I could fit into that niche. But the thing that I was stuck on, the hardest part of those four circles, was trying to figure out something I'm good at. Because I kept coming back to, I'm just a pilot. I, I'm just a fighter pilot. That, that's all I've known since I was five years old. I can't be a pilot anymore. I don't know what I'm good at. 
And that's where I got stuck for like weeks. And then it hit me. The best way to figure out what you're good at is to ask other people. The people who are your friends, your family, in your network. And they started pointing out things to me that I had never even considered about my skill sets as a speaker or a storyteller or, you know, with leadership ideas and lessons learned. And all of a sudden, those four rings came together into my ikigai, which was my reinvention into professional speaking and leadership consulting. That's that's so wonderful and fascinating to me. And it, and it pulls together. I mean, I remember seeing a, a presentation that you gave that's out on the web or on your website or somewhere, a talking, uh, it may have been to a, 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 um, a conference that involved women in business and leadership. You were talking about managing all, both home, family, all the aspects ah. that someone has to manage and thinking back on, on how you did that Mm-hmm. The Air Force in that leadership role. Oh and, yeah. Oh, I, I, I'll tell you. For anyone out there, go do a search. You're going to find this. You get a taste of what it's like to go and see Nicole speak. Aside from tonight, and that to me, that you don't just invent that. You don't just create something like that. These were ideas that you were using before this illness ever happened. Sure. That were things that that was were inside you, and so I love the idea of putting this philosophy to work and having others around you tell you what you're good at and point out some of those things, because you certainly didn't wind up presenting with a bunch of people in the audience going, "Oh my God, she's got nothing to say." You know? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, one of the things that I always tell people when they're going after kind of a big dream or a gnarly dream or some sort of, you know, complex goal, whatever it might be, personal, professional, you know, when they get that kind of, I'm not sure I can do it. What if I fail? It's too hard. Maybe the, the imposter syndrome that some of us, you know, get sometimes, you know, I remind them, you know, who are the people that are cheering you on? There's got, there's got to be at least one person in your life. I mean, we all have that one person. Hopefully we have maybe just a couple, but just one good one is all it takes. And I, I tell them, believe those who believe in you. Believe those who believe in you. And I tell that to myself a lot, you know, because even today as, you know, a professional speaker, I mean, I got asked, you know, early on to speak in a stadium to 15,000 people. Now I'm thinking to myself, you've got to be kidding me. And at that point I'd spoken to several hundred, I'd spoken to up to actually about 5,000, you know, in a normal conference room. And even me, after all that experience and all these years as a fighter pilot, in that moment, I thought to myself, how am I supposed to go into a stadium with 15,000 people and talk to them? I'm not sure I can do that. And then my husband's like, what are you talking about? It's just 15,000 individuals. You speak to an individual, pick a couple faces in the audience. And that's where I kind of remind myself, you know, believe those who believe in you. If there's people that believe I can do it, I can do it. And I stepped out there and within the first, you know, 10 seconds, I knew it was going to be okay. Wow. That's, uh, that, and, and of course, for all, all of us who are used to watching you, for us, same thing. It's like, uh, yeah, of course you could. <laughs> you know, well, where, where do I buy a ticket? <laughs> well, that's kind of you to say, you know, sometimes you look strong and confident on the outside, but on the inside, you know, you're still, I still had butterflies in my stomach and I still had a rapid heartbeat. And that's good for us to feel that way still sometimes every now and again, right? Because that's how you know that you're about to grow. Like you're about to do something you didn't know you can do. You're about to do something you haven't done before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's pretty, that's pretty exciting. And, you know, it's interesting that what you haven't done before, you know, sometimes people go, you know, Nicole, you, you broke barriers and you were a trailblazer as a, the first woman Thunderbird pilot. And, 
you know, I, I don't get to decide what's barrier breaking or trailblazing. I let other people think about that. And, and they go, that, that's really neat that you did something that no one else has done before. And I always tell people the coolest thing about being a trailblazer is that I'm doing, you're doing something that you've never done before. I'm not as excited that I did something that nobody else had ever done before. I'm more proud that I did something that I had never done before. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So if we, I mean, kind of rewinding on the process a little bit, uh, because a, a lot of people, so we, we've certainly seen and, and heard some of what you've been through and how you've managed to navigate through it. Um, it seems that one of the possibilities for people is how you can think through some of this in advance. Is there anything you can do to try to kind of um, disin disinherit this, this assumption that you are only a pilot, that it's the core of what you are? Is, mm -hmm. Do you think, is that kind of, am I just like, like being goofy about it? Or is it actually possible, do you think, that people can put some thought into it to inoculate themselves a little bit into this idea that um, that they have to push back, they have to be super people, and uh, and there's nothing else if this falls apart. Well, so that so that was my mindset, right? So it's really easy for me to sit here, you know, with the the benefit of hindsight and and try to answer, you know, what is a very complex and I think thoughtful, you know, question. How do we uh, make ourselves strong and resilient so that if we are faced with medical challenges. And if we are faced with being grounded for the rest of our lives, like me, like, you know, we can deal with that. And I think one of the first things I, I tell people, because I do get contacted by a lot of pilots who are going through medical issues to, to try to give them the support that they need, you know, as you go through that kind of a difficult transition, I, you know, I remind them that you are so much more, right, than what you are outside of the cockpit. And if it ends tomorrow, and you can never fly again. Nobody, nothing can take away what you did. Every flight you took, every qualification and certification you achieved, right? Every time you slip the surly bonds of earth exists. It's, it's not just a memory, it's a fact. You're always a pilot. I'm, I tell people I'm a fighter pilot. Sure, I'm not flying, but dang it, I'm a fighter pilot. Pilots and fighter, it's, a, it's an attitude, right? Mm -hmm. It's a mentality that allows us to be successful in a lot of different areas. So remind yourself that no matter what, nobody can take away what you did. You're yep. once a pilot, always a pilot. And I think, that, I think that's really, really, really important um, because I've had so many people say to me that are facing those things like, you know, what am I now? Like even people who have lost their licenses or, or have had other things that have been challenges. There's that question of, I, 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 am I still a pilot? And, yeah. and I always wanted to, to embrace them and say like, yes, you don't have to be able at the moment to pilot an aircraft. You may never be again, but you're a pilot. That's if you, that's how you used to introduce yourself. That's how you're still introducing yeah. yourself. Whatever it is, how you think about yourself, you're still a pilot. Pilot is an attitude, right? Pilot's a set of personality traits and characteristics, and we all know it. You know, and accomplishment. For better or for worse, and it doesn't matter if you're flying gliders or you're flying the F-22 or anything in between, we all are cut from the same, you know, the same type of cloth. And people ask me, when I meet them, uh, and they hear about my story, they kind of go, wow, Nicole, you know, you went from fighter pilot, Thunderbird pilot, White House, to 
you know, grounded for the rest of your life. I'm so sorry. And it's very kind and gracious that they say that. But in looking back, I, I don't want people to be sorry for me. You know, I used to believe that my life history, if, if you know, my, my tombstone was written, right, my legacy, my obituary, it was going to say, you know, Nicole was a fighter pilot right? And Nicole was an officer in the United States Air Force. And that somehow was my legacy. And I look back now and I chuckle at how, how narrow of a view I had of myself and how limited that really was. And what I know now is that all of the characteristic skills and traits that I honed as a fighter pilot, discipline, right? Determination, uh, the ability to multitask, the ability to focus, all of those things, the same ones all of you out there have honed. Those were the very characteristics I needed to survive my illness, right? And become as healthy as I can be, right? To become independent again, which I am, and to reinvent myself. And where I am now as a grounded pilot, I have a bigger impact more quickly, more positively on more people than if I had ever just stayed a pilot or if I had ever just stayed a pilot in the Air Force. So being a pilot gave me the character skills and traits to become an even bigger and I think better version of myself. And so those same traits exist in all of you and, and those of you that are watching that are facing medical issues or fearing that medical unknown, you know, there is definitely hope and there is an ability to reinvent and you can still take those pilot traits and turn them into something great. That's such a wonderful way of looking at it. And I think it's, it's a very interesting parallel to what so many like ultra successful people have always said about how their, their, their success is built upon their failures, that their every pivot that's happened in their life that created genius was based on failure, that invention's based on failure. Like, even though medical illness is not quote failure, Correct. it seems that Yes, someone could be a commercial pilot. They could be any, any number of things along the way, but it's the same challenge point or decisive point that happens in your life that you look back on later, because I've never known anyone who's failed after having been transitioned. They've always grown and blossomed and, and evolved in whatever it is. And, and you look back and say, wow, so you could have just continued that. What you're mourning is that you could, could have continued the same thing, but you keep that legacy. You still have all those accomplishments, but they now, are. now you got a new chapter that you wouldn't have had. That you can shape in any way you want. That's the beauty of it. I think, you know, when we start to see ourselves as just a pilot, right, we're missing out on all of these other doors and windows and opportunities, uh, you know, that are out there. If you had asked me five years ago that I would be a professional speaker and consultant, I would have laughed in your face, right? But this is what I do now, and I absolutely love it. And I think it just stands as a testament to like, I really believe that we all have the power to reinvent ourselves at any given time. And, and we talk a lot nowadays about um, this concept of resilience. I know it's, it's in the American lexicon now, which is great. It's important for us to talk about resilience, you know, but remember resilience is, you know, when you're standing and you fall down, you have a mistake of failure, you fail your check ride, which I did, you know, how do you get back into the cockpit, you know, the next day to try again, you know, it's, you got to be tough, you got to be resilient after that failure. How do you get back in the cockpit? Well, sometimes when medical things come around, right, which are not in our control, like a check, right, is a little bit more in our control, right? I mean, 
sickness and illness is not in our, and injury is not in our control, right? It is unexpected. And it's not a matter of being resilient. You know, people say you're so resilient and I know they're trying to be nice, but I'm more than that. I like to use the term resurgent, right? Because an illness like this fundamentally changes who you are, fundamentally changes everything, you know, about you and, and everything about you moving forward. It's a fact. I mean, again, my story is an example. You know, there is no bouncing back to my old self. She's gone. She does not exist. All right. This is about resurgence. This is about coming out of these things different. Like I, I am much more compassionate towards other people than I ever was before. And I considered myself a pretty nice person, but I'm more compassionate. Um, I have more clarity on the things that are important to me. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no to things, right? So that I can live by my priorities. I'm a lot more determined uh, on what my purpose is. And I'm a heck of a lot stronger than I ever gave myself credit for. And so resilience is cool, but resurgence is even cooler. I love that. Absolutely love that. And, and you touched on something else, which I think I also want to want to latch on to and talk a little bit more. And that has to do with the compassion, because if there's one trait I have seen, uh, uh, I've seen it in my, my own struggles. I've seen it in many other people's struggles that I know is that there seems to be something wonderful that happens as people do that research, go through that resurgence, go through that evolution following crisis. They often become far more focused on others and on on what they can do to kind of give back Uh, and and what's interesting is not only do they switch to become more compassionate or or give back but they seem to wind up happier it's almost a it's almost this forced evolution and pivot point in their lives i i think it goes back to right there's a until you experience something that's this life changing, right? And there are people watching right now who I know who have gone through similar or even more difficult, you know, medical challenges and life changing type events. Like it's so easy to just go through life when you're healthy, right? Expecting that every day is going to be fine and you're going to get in the jet and you're going to fly and it's going to be good. And you think very individualistically, not in a bad way, right? But that's your life. This is my identity I'm going to put on my uniform. I'm going to get in my jet, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, your entire world absolutely explodes and you're exposed to, like you said, like that compassion, you're exposed to clarity of purpose and your world just becomes a heck of a lot, I think bigger. And you realize that your impact is not just on that one cockpit and that one plane and that one day. It's, it can be bigger, right? It's that kind of ripple effect. Well, now I can take what I've learned through this illness and I can actually help other people, right? right. Reinvent themselves. I can actually help other people, you know, soften that difficult landing that they're about to have when their life changes. And mm-hmm. I think it speaks to just human nature in our hearts. We want connection. And an illness and, and reinvention like this allows you greater connection. And I love all my fighter pilot friends and all my Air Force friends, but you know what? My chronic illness tribe that I have now, right? This new group of people who've all been bitten by a tick. I've got friends around the world, right? That we talked about lawyers. I've got doctors. I've got pilots. I've got bankers. You know, all of us had our world just flipped upside down. 
And I have this whole, you know, you're exposed to just a whole new, bigger world. And it's a, it's a pretty cool thing. And, you know, I, for context too, and I know you know this stuff, but I speak for fun on the side to help pay the bills and go on vacations. But um, my primary amount of time in my day that's free, I'm a patient advocate. You know, I sit on several government boards, several academic panels, and several nonprofits because, to your point, I have something to give now because of this illness that I didn't have to give before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a... I think that's a fascinating thing, and it's it's maybe a, a little bit of a of a silver lining to some of the challenges that so many people face. I've even if people aren't in aviation, they always talk about when they've gone through things like this that they used to be all focused on money, and now they're focused more on people. I mean, everything seems to universally switch to refocusing on something that gives them more happiness and more connection. Yep, more connection, more happiness. You know, it's a it's a feeling of significance, right? I think as a fighter pilot, I had an impact, but I think doing what I do now as someone who's a patient advocate, who's had to go through being permanently grounded, like I now think I'm more significant in what I do to other people, you know, with other people. Like I can be a positive, significant impact on people. Does that make sense? It makes a, a lot of sense. Yeah. Mm, no, it makes a lot of sense. Now you're, work, particularly in, in tick-borne illnesses, is, I think, an ex- extraordinarily important one. T- tell me a little bit about that world, because that's an illness. It's that, the wild west. <laughs> yeah, and, and with so much uh, under or non-diagnosis or improper diagnosis, like, this is something that I think as many people who are online need to hear you know, I got to tell you, I mean, you know, tick-borne illness is something uh, that can be absolutely devastating and life-changing. Uh, I'm proof of that. Um, and it is unnecessarily uh, controversial. Uh, there is a lack of education, a lack of awareness. I am here to tell you one tick bite can absolutely change your life. The best way to avoid tick-borne illnesses or becoming chronically ill from a tick-borne illness is to avoid getting the tick bite. So I'm big in talking to people about tick bite prevention, uh, things like treating your gear, like your shoes, your golf bag, your camping equipment, whatever, with permethrin, uh, wearing an insect repellent on exposed skin, knowing how to do a proper tick check and especially proper tick removal. There's only one way and it's with fine point tweezers, my friend. None of those other old wives tales, okay? You know, and then what symptoms to look for? You know, and that's where things get complicated because the symptoms of Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses tend to be uh, very vague, right? Fever, malaise, you know, joint pain, muscle pain. It can easily and understandably be confused, you know, with with many other um, illnesses out there. So it's one of those things where I tell people, like, prevent the bite first. And if you find yourself with complex chronic symptoms that don't make sense to doctors or anybody else, and you've ruled out the big other things, it's probably reasonable to look into tick-borne illnesses. And Jeff, you're going to get me on my soapbox because I can keep going, but I'll let you guide my time on tick-borne illness. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think it's very important. So I mean, is it something that, that uh, can be, in your case, you said it was diagnosed much later. Is it, yeah. is it something that if people are long past having uh, a mark from a tick or, or rash or something like that can still be diagnosed? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I went four years misdiagnosed. I received three different misdiagnoses. Uh, those would include fibromyalgia, 
undifferentiated, undifferentiated connective tissue disorder, as well as probable multiple sclerosis. So those are the misdiagnoses that I received. During that time, right, these bacteria, viruses, and parasites that ticks can give you were just building up, right, the bacterial load in my body, and they eventually got into my brain. And it took four years for them to eat away at me until I woke up, you know, basically locked in. Um, the fact that tick-borne illnesses were never considered uh, is unacceptable, right? It is something that people should think about once other things, you know, have been ruled out and that you aren't getting better with treatment for some of these other things. Look, 500,000 Americans a year, according to the CDC, get Lyme disease. Those are the ones who are diagnosed and treated in the acute phase. So we're not even counting all of the other people out there. Of those 500,000, 20%, according to the CDC, will remain chronically ill for six months or more. I'm obviously in that 20%. Other studies, including ones out of John, uh, Johns Hopkins University, say upwards of 50%. But let's go with the CDC numbers. That's 100,000 Americans a year who are becoming chronically disabled because of a tick bite. Um, the tests that we have are not accurate in the acute phase of disease when it is most treatable. What happens is if you get a tick bite, um, most people who get Lyme disease don't recall seeing a tick. Those little boogers are small. And if they're in your hair or on your back or you're not doing a daily tick check, you're going to miss them. When they bite you, they actually put out a little chemical that purposely numbs your skin so that you won't feel them. Did you know that? So you have no. to use your eyes and your hands to go out and look for this. Um, of the people who get Lyme, 50% don't get any kind of rash. Further, the 50% that are lucky and do get a rash, that rash is not always in the shape of the bullseye that we talk about. Lyme disease rashes can come in many different shapes and forms and look very different on different tones of skin. So there's a lot of myths, if you will, out there that we need to overcome. You might not see the tick. You might not see a rash. The test doesn't become accurate until your body has built up enough antibodies to be positive, which takes two to four weeks. So what we see a lot is someone says, doc, I got bit by a tick three days ago. Oh, I feel like I've got a sore neck. I've got a fever. The doctor says, oh, great. I'll give you a Lyme test. Lyme test comes back negative. Well, of course it's going to come back negative. Your body hasn't had time to create the antibodies for a positive test. And so what happens is they go misdiagnosed or undiagnosed. And then they end up four years later in a very late stage of disease that becomes much more difficult, much more than three weeks of oral antibiotics to treat, okay? And in many cases, a lot of damage has already been done, you know, that can't be undone. So I'm getting on my tick soapbox, uh-oh. <laughs> well, I think it's really important. I mean, uh, it's very, very important. And, and with uh, so many of our audience that do backcountry flying and things like that, I think it's very applicable to that. 100%, and you know, we need to remember, Ticks carry more than Lyme, all right? Ticks carry a plethora of different bacteria, viruses, and parasites. Every state has their own issue. People say, well, I wasn't in the Northeast, you know, so I can't possibly have Lyme disease. Well, <laughs> there's lots of different types of bugs that ticks can give you in nearly every state, okay? There's Lyme disease definitely up in the Northwest, so think Michigan, Wisconsin. We have a lot of Lyme disease in California. Does anybody know that? Yeah, I don't know why the CDC doesn't talk about it. The data is there. Um, but Lyme is a bacteria called Borrelia burgdorferi. Um, Borrelia is a little spirochete 
little corkscrew shaped little booger that likes to swim out of your blood and get into your, you know, other connective tissues and your muscles and stuff and cause a lot of problems. And the fact of the matter is, is there are many different types of Borrelia. So one of the diseases I also had was something called Borrelia hermsii, which is a form of the Borrelia bacteria that comes from a soft body tick that's only found in California, you know, like California, Nevada, some of the, the Western states. So when doctors test you for Lyme and you say I was bit by a tick and the Lyme test is negative, it is reasonable to ask about all of the other bacteria, viruses, and parasites. I mean, my gosh, we take our dogs once a year in for their wellness check and they get a tick-borne illness panel. We don't have anything like that for humans, which is why I do my advocacy work so we can raise money to increase research, uh, to create better tests. We need better therapeutics to cure people at all stages of disease. And we need to raise, obviously, medical provider education awareness. I'll stop there. <laughs> That's, no, I think it's very, very, very important. I, I think, you know, switching a little bit, the, the other thing, which, of course, is top of mind right now and has a lot of people wondering, do I say anything to my doctor or don't I, is, has to do with some of the ramifications of COVID. Some of the things that people are finding, obviously, I'm, I would imagine that you've gotten some calls. And, a lot. And, yeah, about what, you know, I've certainly been approached by people that say I, the last thing I want to do is tell my doctor I have symptoms of long COVID or sometimes I feel foggy. Um, well, wow, right. Wow. I, I'm so glad you brought this up. Um, my heart literally breaks and aches for people who are getting long COVID. And I know COVID is very uh, controversial. People have a lot of different um, varying beliefs about it. When you look at the scientific data, there are a percentage of people who get COVID who end up remaining significantly symptomatic. Uh, at this point, there are people who were in the first wave of COVID in the spring of 2020 that have been bedridden for three years. Um, the latest estimate I heard in the United States alone was 4 million people who are out of work and unable to leave the house because of long COVID. Now people say, ah, I don't believe in long COVID. That sounds silly. They just are lazy or it's all psychological. All I can say is I live with post-infectious syndrome. Uh, we have known scientifically for a long time that viral bacterial infections can lead to what we call long-term sequela or sequelae, right? Long-term syndrome. Um, Post-infectious syndromes are not unheard of. You can have them in Lyme. You can have them in Epstein-Barr. There are people who get it following the flu. Uh, the percentage is much higher with COVID. And one of the things that's so hard when you have a post-infectious syndrome is these kind of mysterious symptoms that don't make sense. They don't fit into any bucket. Doc doctors don't know what to do with someone who has chronic Lyme. Doctors don't know what to do with someone who has long COVID, but here's the point, right? Science is gonna bridge the gap on long COVID. I have a lot of hope uh, in the scientists and I have a lot of hope in the researchers. Um, I follow this very closely. There's some really smart people working on it. If you are dealing with long COVID, which generally involves a heck of a lot of fatigue and a heck of a lot of brain fog, ask yourself, should I be piloting an aircraft, right? None of us should be at the controls of an aircraft, whether we're the sole passenger or we've got 200 people behind us. If we have brain fog, it is absolutely not worth it. Too many people care about you. Too many people love you. 
and there's too much hope for treatments. There's too much hope on board, I think, for a cure in, our, in, in a reasonable amount of time. So don't do something you can't walk back from. Um, and do what you can to not get COVID. All controversy aside, the science says the more times you get COVID, the higher your chances are of getting long COVID. So just like I say to prevent the bite, prevent infection with COVID. Thank you for that. <laughs> Sorry. Oh my gosh. I, I didn't know that this podcast was going to go this direction. People are going to be like, my gosh, Nicole, people remember, I am not a doctor. I want to make sure like this is all just based on my experience. I am not a doctor. This is not medical advice, but I do tell people, um, even though I don't have a science degree or a medical degree, I do have a PhD and it stands for patient has disease. So I speak these things from experience because I care about you. I think it is incredibly caring and it makes so much sense. It really does. So don't, don't think twice about being on these subjects. And by the way, I didn't even know there was anything controversial about Lyme disease. So when he said this is controversial, you've got me. Okay. Yeah. Let me tell you what's controversial, uh, not to patients or caregivers, but to frontline medical providers um, is that there is a belief that there isn't or can't be chronic Lyme disease. The belief is, is that three weeks of oral antibiotics called doxycycline cures everybody at most stages of disease. We patients and caregivers, we know that that's not true. We know that because we know each other and, and all of this. And we have clinicians and researchers who also um, agree with us based on what they're seeing clinically. The fact of the matter is, is that this really hasn't been studied in any way, shape, or form to the depth that it should. And that requires both money and it being prioritized by the government. So until we can get the government to say this is a problem and that we need more research and we get the funding to come with it, right, then that's when we're going to see, I think, the tipping point and that's when we're going to see things change. So in the meantime, you know, us advocates do our best to, to do the drum roll, to share our stories, to collaborate together, to gain that momentum or to gain the weight for that tipping point. Um, what we have discovered, thanks to Dr. John Alcott out of, uh, and many others, by the way, Dr. Monica Embers, um, is that there is in fact, right, it exists. They call it post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. It's been defined in the science. That's where they came up with the numbers that 20% stay sick. But the point is that no one seems to be like doing anything about it. So it's very real. We know it's real. The question, the controversy is, is it a persistent infection? Is it um, an autoimmune response? Or is it permanent damage, right, that can't be undone? Is it one of the above, some of the above? Maybe none of the above? So there's a portion of people that believe it is a low-grade persistent infection that should be treated. Uh, the IDSA and the CDC will say no, right, because of real important things like we don't want people getting C. diff, you know, from being on antibiotics too long. You don't want to destroy your gut microbiome. Uh, we don't want antibiotic resistance, you know, which to me says, well, instead of denying it or not researching it, how about we come up with therapeutics that cure people at all stages of disease? Things that seem simple in government are actually quite hard. Uh, I worked in the government for more than 21 years, and I know lots of people watching have, so they probably understand what I'm trying to say. So it's a, it's a marathon and not a sprint but we are making progress on breaking apart that controversy and getting to a place where, again, science, science will indeed bridge the gap. Well, I think that's absolutely wonderful. And, and I, I just appreciate your message overall. I, the bottom line, I think, of course, is that there's, there's, there's life beyond having your medical threatened. 
there's life beyond your things like that. And it's just so wonderful to hear that from you. And, you know, as a reminder, right, if you find yourself medically grounded, if you find yourself grounded for life like me, and you're, fine, and you're thinking to yourself, what am I going to do? I'm not a pilot anymore. It doesn't mean you can't be a part of aviation. I, I'm still a part of aviation. I share, I share pilot stories all the time, and I get paid for it. I mean, you can teach ground school. You can teach simulators, right? Um, you can work in other aspects of aviation. Maybe become an air traffic controller and tell pilots where to go. I mean, maybe become an aircraft mechanic. You can still be involved. And one of the ways I'm still involved is, you know, through mentoring young people. Right. Helping young people become pilots, answering their questions, helping guide them in the right direction for training and for profession. So there's so many ways to still stay connected to your passion and to still make a difference, even if you're not the one in the cockpit. I think that's just a wonderful, wonderful message. Well, uh, Nicole, thank you so, so much, as always, for taking time out of your evening to spend it with us here on Social Flight Live. I am truly grateful for you taking the time to do that and, of course, for your friendship. Well, right back at you. I appreciate your friendship, too. I appreciate the audience. Thank you for letting me talk about Lyme and tick-borne illnesses. Um, and to everybody out there watching, health is wealth. I'll tell you that. So take care of yourselves. I wish you all the best. And thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Good night. Good night. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here for another edition of Social Flight Live. Next week on Tuesday, September 20th, we will be joined by Lightspeed Aviation founder Alan Schrader, who will be talking about their newly announced headset the Delta Zulu. A very, very cool. So be sure to be here for that wonderful episode. And on Tuesday, September 27th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, we have a really cool show. Don Durston from NASA's Ames Research Center is going to talk about his work on the X-59 supersonic aircraft, attempting to bring supersonic flight over populated areas through their design that reduces the sonic boom and makes it uh, uh, almost imperceptible. So really, really cool things happening at NASA Ames Research Center. And on Tuesday, October 4th at 8 p.m., Top Gun Maverick stunt pilot and aerial coordinator Kevin LaRosa will be here on Social Flight Live. Until then, I wish you all blue skies. Mm -hmm.